Welcome to the next podcast in Millionaire Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you for joining me today for this episode with Lauren Martin. Lauren shares her journey from Melbourne, Australia, to working in London workrooms, creating unique pieces for the Royal Wedding in 2011. Now to her specialist field where she spends her time working and researching. I hope you enjoy this episode with Lauren today. I'd like to thank our wonderful podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. Be Unique Millinery, House of Adorn, The Essential Hat, Fat Millinery, Haddis Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Hat Academy, Hats by Lego, Hat Mags, Marie D'Antoni Millinery, Louise McDonald Milliner, Millinery Australia, Best Western Apollo Bay Motel and Apartments, and Judith M. Millinery Supply House. You can find a link to each of these businesses in your show notes, which is on your podcast app or through our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I would like to invite you to sign up to be a Patreon of Millinery Info. There is quite a lot that goes into producing, recording and publishing this podcast and this is a way you can show your support by signing up to be a supporter of Millinery Info through Patreon. You can do this by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Millinery Info. This helps us to continue to bring you content that you see and hear from Millinery Info. I hope you enjoy this episode with Lauren. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us on the Millinery Info podcast today. It's wonderful to have you as part of this series. Um, let's dive back right to the beginning. How mm-hmm. did you first become involved with millinery? Uh, well, I think officially I first became involved. Uh, I studied costume at Swinburne University in Paran. I'm not sure it's even called Swinburne anymore, and I'm not sure the course exists as it did. But um, in 2001, 2002, I studied there, and we did millinery in the first year. But the second year, we had Louise McDonald uh, come and teach us uh, period millinery. Um, So we had to do a women's hat and a men's hat, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I had so much fun, and Louise was just an amazing teacher. Um, And I did quite well with my hat, so I kind of thought, oh, okay, maybe I'm not not bad at this. (laughs) Like, you know, um, I never really thought, you know, a job as a milliner existed. Um, I'd always done dancing, done ballet. Um, up until I was about 17 and always made costumes, you know, for the, the shows and always loved making the headdresses, but they were literally like, you know, wire from Bunnings with Christmas beads wrapped around type thing, you know, so, um, but it was just so much fun. I never actually realized it could be an actual job. Um, I suppose until I got to Swinburne and realized that's what Louise did. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Um, but yeah, it was mainly through that and through her that kind of led me on the path I'm on now. So yeah, that was the beginning. (laughs) Did you keep studying millinery through that course or what were the next, the next things you did from there once you discovered this amazing career path? Well, because I'd done costume, I thought I was going to be a costume maker. Um, So that's what I did initially. Um, But I didn't know uh, how big the millinery scene was in Melbourne. And I had a call one day from a lady named Susan Drurup, uh, who ran a shop called The Essential Hat on High Street in Paran. And she said that Louise McDonald had recommended me um, as someone who might want to come and work for Spring Racing Carnival. I thought, okay, this is good you know paid work so this could be fun so that was oh I can't even remember what year it was now oh crumbs 2000 and 
four, maybe 2003. <laughs> anyway, doesn't really matter. Um, but she used to have uh, kind of freelance people come in each year and uh, she just loved teaching new people. And yeah, so I went and did that for about six or eight weeks, um, all the while still making costumes. Um, and I kind of did both. Um, I went and worked for Sue for another two seasons after that, um, but also got a job at the Australian Ballet as a costume maker. So that was really good fun. And I loved, I loved both really. I couldn't really, you know, like I was glad I never had to decide and, you know, choose one or the other. Um, but I just built up so much experience working with Sue um, and having all the customers come in the shop and the crazy spring racing carnival. I mean, I think each year there used to be like five or 600 hats go out, um, you know, that we'd make over the space of six to eight weeks. So it was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was really busy. It was stressful, I think, mostly for Sue, but um, just the people I got to meet working with in her little team. She had a little team at peak time of about, you know, five or six people. So that was quite nice too. I've met lots of, you know, um, really good friends working there. So, yeah. <laughs> You're working for Sue making spring racing hats. Were you making yeah. other pieces outside of that at that time? Um, not hats, no. I don't think, um, I think I was still mostly costume. So I was doing lots of costume bits, freelance. Um, I don't think I ever felt like a proper milliner. I felt like I was always someone who came to help to make the hats, if that makes sense. Um, I kind of thought of, I mean, Sue always, you know, proclaimed, um, that she was never a milliner. She's like, Lauren, I'm not a milliner. I'm not a proper milliner. Da, 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 da. I just have a hat shop and I sell hats on. I know how to make the hats, you know. I think she always looked up to Louise, you know, like oh, Louise is a milliner, da, 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 da. But um, Sue had an incredible talent um, and, you know, she taught me loads about sewing and hats and the customers. And, um, yeah, so I think I always just felt like not the helper, but not, not a proper milliner, you know, <laughs> like, um, I did go and do a course maybe to help me feel like a proper milliner. And that was at the Melbourne school of fashion. I don't know if that still exists either. Um, and that was one year, every Wednesday evening for about 30 weeks with a tutor named Sarah Connors. Um, and she'd worked in England. She had been head of workroom, I think at Frederick Fox. So, um, we just got to learn kind of everything. We got to learn how to block felt, how to block straw, how to block cinema, et cetera, et cetera. So I think after that, um, and I think it was a certificate in millinery construction and design or something. I don't know. I think after that, maybe I felt more like a proper milliner, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> and, um, eventually you, um, moved over to England. What led you over there? Um, I think. Um, maybe the costume world, uh, cause I worked at the Australian ballet. Uh, there was another girl there who I was working alongside. She went and got her visa to work in England and she worked at the Royal Ballet. And I did love working at the ballet, but I was in the men's department. I was mostly just making tights and, you know, tops and da, 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 da. And it was fine. But after 18 months, I thought, well, maybe it's time for a new challenge. So because my mum is English, I can get a British passport and British citizenship. So I did that. And I bought a one-way ticket to London. How <laughs> I bought it in 2005, uh, a week before the 7-7 bombs went off. So I bought my ticket and then a week later, all that happened in London. And it was a bit like, oh, where am I going? What's happening, you know? Um, but six months later, in January 2006, I flew to England 
never having left Australia. So I was, yeah, 23. It was good fun. <laughs> and what did you do when you got there? Um, bit of sightseeing. Um, it was January, so it was freezing cold. It was really grey. I don't think I saw the sun for about a week. And having come from a really hot Australian summer, um, it was that really hot summer where we had a really like 40 degree New Year's Eve or something, you know, it was really, really, really hot and landing in London where it was, you know, two degrees or something. And um, yeah, it was a real shock, but it was fun because it was London. It was all big and exciting and just like I'd seen on TV, you know, and just, I suppose I explored a bit and then um, money ran out quite quickly. So I had to get a job. So I went to work in a pub, which was really good fun. Um and yeah, it was kind of a bit of that, a bit of office work and a bit of uh, like costume freelance work um, for about two years, I think. Um, yeah, I did all sorts of different things. It was, it was an interesting time. <laughs> okay. And then you shifted back into millinery. Where did, how did you start considering a position after doing those freelance work? So I think it was, so I'd been there nearly two years. So about November, 2007, um, I'd been working all different jobs. Um, as I said, office work, costume work, pub work. Um, and it was a particularly bleak November. I was going out to a temp office job out near Heathrow um, and out there it's just really it's really grim if you've ever seen the office um, you know it's just that kind of environment it's just really um, and I was on the train on the tube and the free newspapers that you you get on the on the tube I was reading that and because the journey was so long I managed to get right to the end to where the jobs were at the back there was a job at the back and it just said milliner experience milliner required and I was like hmm you never see that that's weird I wonder what how experienced they mean you know so I got to this temp job and as soon as I got my first tea break you know like I was outside on the phone like calling up to see like you know what the deal with the job was and I phoned I phoned up and as soon as I answered the phone they said um hello Philip Tracy London and I just went oh my god oh god that's a shame I'm never gonna get a job there oh no that's well you know da, da, da. so but you know I told them who I was, my experience. And they said, oh, well, yeah, if you can send your CV and um, that would be great. So it did. It turned out, long story short, it turned out I probably had about the right amount of experience they wanted. Um, they don't want someone who doesn't know anything and they don't want someone who's had their own label, who knows lots of stuff, who kind of wants to come in and, you know, kind of, you know, shout their own ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So um I had a little bit of experience and I got invited for an interview. So that was exciting and nerve wracking um, just because, yeah, I still felt like little old me from Melbourne, Australia. I thought, okay, well, I wonder if I'll actually get to meet Philip. I wasn't sure if I would or not, but so I dressed up and very nervously went for an interview and um, yeah, it was great. Um, as soon as I walked in, um, Philip was wearing like, jeans and a hoodie and converse trainers and I just immediately relaxed I just thought oh thank god like <laughs> you know I was expecting something like in the devil wears Prada where it was going to be really like high fashion just but it wasn't it's on a kind of semi-industrial estate in Battersea which is in South London and the building's just not not super fancy um 
and yeah, I just had a nice, a nice chat showed. I, I only had one hat with me in the, in the country. That was the only hat I took. And I didn't realize till I got to the interview that I had machine stitched the Peterson inside this felt hat. And I just looked at it and I just went, oh my God, like of all, like I could have at least like taken it off and hand stitched it, but it had loads and loads of embroidery on it. Um, and I made it as part of the course I did in Melbourne. Um, so it was a little felt pillbox hat and I had loads of stump work embroidery. And that was a bit he looked at. He zeroed in on the embroidery and he was looking at like this, these tiny little stitches. And I think he saw like, okay, you're capable of lots of tiny little stitches. Okay, this, yeah, cool. So that was that. And then they said, okay, well, we'll get you in for a second interview. Um, and... So I was really excited. I thought, oh, I might be in with a chance here. Like I, I thought I'd be up against like, you know, 50 people, like all fighting for this job. But I came for the second interview and they basically just took me on a tour of the building and said, oh, well, this is where your desk will be. And this and that and the other and, da, da, da. and the person who you're replacing, she's leaving in December. And, you know, when can you start type thing? And I was like, oh, okay. Did you um, say tomorrow? <laughs> pretty much pretty much um I think as I said this interview was in November and I really didn't want to go back to temp office work so I just said look uh yeah I can start in January but if you need me sooner like I can come like you know in a week's time and I think they said yeah let's do that so I had about a three-week crossover period with the person who I was replacing and thank goodness I did because yeah literally thrown in at the deep end it was quite it was quite intense <laughs> and what type of things were you were you doing in the workroom there so in Philip's workroom at that time so that was late 2007 early 2008 there was about five or six of us I think full-time permanent milliners um, and he had a head of workroom um and and Philip you know Philip has a desk in the room as well and it's a crazy busy room and there's just lots going on and it looks really really messy I suppose it is a bit but you know um basically everything's going on all the time so there's production for all the big department stores so like Harrods and Harvey Nichols and all that sort of thing um so that kind of runs I suppose the whole year um so you're making you're making the hats from the collection to send to those shops all over the world you know I used to get excited when we'd be doing like the Meyer and David Jones orders and you know um like, oh these hats are going to Australia how exciting you know and seeing what people have ordered and um but you know big batches so there might be two or three of one hat there might be 10 of another hat there might be 15 of another hat and so you'd be given certain styles from the collection so a collection of about 60 hats in summer or maybe 40 hats in winter you might have between I don't know five and 10 different styles that you would make and you didn't make other people's styles so you just made your ones so um, they were specialized kind of specialized it kind of it was just easier quicker because a lot of the styles were kind of variations from the season before so it might just be a different color straw with a different kind of flower and a different you know feather um, but essentially were very similar you know shape to, to the previous season so it just made sense to get the person who knew how to make that shape um, to keep on doing it so that was fine it did get a bit like boring maybe some of them you just you know after a couple of, after a year or so and you're like 
oh, okay, this is the fourth version of this hat, right? Okay, I know how to make this one now. This one's, this one's, I know, you know, it was exciting when you got, you know, the newer, more complicated things, you know, thrown at you. So, um, and I suppose the biggest challenge was, I suppose, making the multiples. So again, like not just making one hat, but okay, here you go, make six at a time, identical hats. And oh yeah, can you've got three days. <laughs> you know, like so um just juggling um all those big lists of hats. And then I suppose at Ascot and uh like London Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, New York Fashion Week, all that. Um that's when all the extras used to get thrown in. So Ascot was really busy and that's when you do all the stuff for all the big catwalk shows and it was just always busy. Yeah. <laughs> and from there, how long were you in that workroom for? Um, from 2007, I finally left in 2013. Um, and I had a couple of breaks in between. Uh, breaks where I actually did quit and leave, but then came back. So there were two breaks. Um, both of those breaks, I did come back to Australia just to see my family, just to have, you know, a bit of time away. Um, but both times, um, Philip had said, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry to see you go. And, you know, you can always come back if you want to. So I'm not sure they can, you know, when people say that, they completely mean it, you know, if you're going to take them up on it. But I did. I literally phoned Philip and said, Philip, I'm coming back. Can, can I come and work for you, please? <laughs> so, you know, that was nice. But yeah, after 2013, I turned, I turned 30 in 2012. I think once you get to 30, it was, yeah, it got a bit, it got a bit much. <laughs> time. And what were some of the uh, memorable projects you got to work on while you were in the workroom? Um, so the biggest standout, I suppose, was the Royal Wedding in 2011. Um, so that was April. And I think she became engaged in like November or December the year before. So as soon as she got engaged, we were like, okay, like... <laughs> this is us, like, you know, we're going to be busy, I think. Um, and I mean, in a perfect world, people would get their hats ready six months before the wedding, you know, but I suppose oh. nobody knew if they were going to be invited or not and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think, I think most orders came in maybe, you know, two months before. I think everything started getting really sorted a month before, but then it just got crazy. We had TV crews coming in from literally all over the world um, to come in and talk to us. They were filming us, you know, just, it was absolutely bonkers. Yeah. I mean, I think even ABC news came in, you know, like every, 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 you know, few hours, there was a different news crew. So I would say, everybody, this is the new team from Venezuela. Say hello. This is the news team from, you know, da, 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 da. and then they're like, this is the news team from Australia. And then it's like, Lauren's from Australia. Lauren, say hello. Da, 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 da. It's just like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, my mom's trying to sell us. <laughs> we were literally like, you know, trying to stitch all these hats because there were 37 or 38 hats, I think. And every single hat was different from each other. Every single hat had a different block. A lot of the blocks had been made specially for the hats for the wedding. So it was brand new hats. And I mean, the first time you make any new hat always takes a long time, but these were like, you know, super, super special, like couture hats. I learned a lot. <laughs> it was, it was good. From then, did the those styles kind of shift into the mainstream styles or the, the main collection from there? Were people then going on to order those styles or it was an exclusive Ooh. for that event? 
think a lot because of the uh how do I put it the reaction to some of the hats um was <laughs> quite um extraordinary I guess none of us really expected you know we just thought okay the royal wedding's on everyone's just going to be all about you know William and Kate and da, da 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 and the hats will be there but no one will care about the hats but of course you know in the week afterwards um the hoo-ha over the Beatrice hat was just insane um and that was one of the hats I was working on so I worked on Beatrice I worked on Eugenie 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 um I worked on Tara Palmer Tomkinson's hat and I also made one for the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire so they were my main four and I didn't work 100% on each one just because in the workroom by that stage a lot of us had quite similar skills at a certain level so it was quite easy for us to pass hats to each other if we had to work on one thing da, 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 da. um Philip might say oh Lauren can you pass that to Teresa and she can do this da, 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 da. so all our skills were interchangeable and really you can't tell our work from each other if that makes sense so I can't completely <laughs> yeah yeah I mean and that's I mean we just got used to it but I suppose it's not a usual thing for other milliners to hand the hat you're working on to another milliner and let them work on it and then you get it back and you keep you know you finish working on so a lot of the hats we made absolutely had you know two three four five hands working on them and you just you couldn't be precious you just had to kind of you know just go with it. It was great. It meant you didn't have to make the whole hat. <laughs> like, was there um, a surprise to the response from Beatrix's shape? Because it was um, compared to things like antlers and a toilet bowl seat and it just shocked people as to the yeah. shape of it. So how was the, I don't know if you can share too much, but what was the reaction within the team that were making it? Um, well, we, that night we worked really late um, there were just so many hats to finish and it wasn't that it was you know badly organized or you know that we couldn't do it there were just so many hats and we worked I left the workroom at half past six seven in the morning um, and got home turned on the tv I think poured myself a glass of wine I didn't even go to bed like I just was like I've just got to go with this you know because I had loads of friends coming over to watch the wedding so basically when I saw the wedding I'd had no sleep and I saw all the people arriving and yeah saw all the hats I was like oh this is da 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 um and I suppose social media was was around then but maybe not quite as big as say Instagram and Twitter are now so I think now I probably would have jumped straight on Instagram to see what the world was saying but I'm not sure how I found out that the world just absolutely hated that hat like um I saw it was getting a bit of attention maybe in the news but um I suppose it wasn't till the weeks afterward that all the newspapers just made such a big deal I was like oh okay we we didn't foresee it we thought maybe her sister's hat might get more attention just because it was such a bright blue it was really quite bright um but no that's the one that's the one the media kind of you know <laughs> picked up and ran with and um you know Philip wasn't bothered at all he was like well people are talking about the hat it's got people talking it's got people animated it's got people you know like discussing that's what you want in life isn't mm-hmm. it you want people to discuss things so he wasn't offended and I think Beatrice she wasn't bothered at all she just she put the hat up for auction on eBay um and it raised like 81,000 pounds or something ridiculous 
um yeah it went to america and now it's in the met museum so that's kind of cool it's really cool <laughs> so once you finished up with um philip there mm-hmm. what what was next for you in your millinery career um well so obviously i'd had royal wedding in 2011 um in 2012, Philip did his first catwalk um, couture show, that he, a first one in eight years. So I hadn't been there for one. And everyone said, oh, he hasn't done one for ages. You know, this one's, this one's going to be really big. And they got loads of sponsorship and loads of funding, et cetera. And it was at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. And he used Michael Jackson's costumes that had been auctioned, that were being auctioned, I think. Um, so Michael Jackson's actual clothes were worn by all the models. Cool. Um, and he had all black models, um, you know, wearing these clothes and all the hats that we made. So we did about 35 hats for that. That was really, really big. I think that was almost as big for me as the Royal Wedding. Um, and after that, so that was September 2012. After that, I was done. I was just like, you know, it was another all-nighter. It was just really, you know it took a lot out of me and yeah, I needed a break. So I think I left after that and went back to Australia. I think I came and did some teaching for Louise and I did some other teaching as well. Um, and when I went back to England, I met my now partner who's from Nottingham, um, on a ski trip in France, which sounds really, really glamorous and it was good fun, but, um, yeah (laughs) um but basically so I was in London he was in Nottingham um and I suppose my focus just wasn't London anymore and so I left I came up to Nottingham to do a a, the third year of a a BA course in costume just so that I could have my my degree um and yes I moved up to Nottingham in 2013 and have kind of lived here ever since uh so yeah kind of went back into the costume world still doing bits of millinery but not really still because I, I suppose consider myself more of a proper milliner but still you know no Philip's a milliner I'm not a milliner you know I just make hats <laughs> like um yeah I started my little Etsy shop around that time as kind of like a sideline for something to do whilst freelance work was happening so that was that was interesting because it was the first time I was making what I wanted to make and what I thought the world might want, which was kind of like vintage style hats. I didn't really want to make modern things. I wanted to make the things that I would like to wear. So I researched lots of things and made like little 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s hats. And But then realized like you can still buy lots of that stuff. So, you know, unless you're doing something really kind of, I don't know, different, it's, you know, people can, can buy a 1950s hat fairly easily and not too expensively. So... Um, yeah, I've kind of continued, you know, the costume work as well as the millinery work, um, ever since, but it's only recently, maybe in the last, what, uh, three, four years, but it's kind of gone really, really historical instead. I really discovered what I like to make. So yeah, it's a bit niche. (laughs) And what is this specialist area? Because you've gone on to some very, um, not intense is the right word, but very specialist area of study as well. Um, so I think I think it was even something Louise said once about 
when she worked at Cosprop in London, because I knew she had that theatrical millinery background when she worked in London, and that she'd learned, maybe it was an interview I read or something with her, where she said something about she got to study all the hats, um, you know, that they had in stock and learn a lot about how they were made um, by studying, you know, real examples of, of old hats. And there's not many books that tell you how to make old hats. And I thought, okay, so that's how you learn how to make old hats. You you find actual old hats and you, you copy them. So uh, in 2019, I bought on Etsy an 1830s bonnet. Um, it was not that expensive. And I, as soon as I got it, I saw it and I thought, oh, I want to try and make this because, you know, it just looks like fun, et cetera, et cetera. So I did a, a reproduction of it um, and enjoyed it so much and learned so much. Um, I kind of realised... Maybe there was some further study in this. So I approached someone about doing an MA kind of on the topic of 1830s millinery. And she was really enthusiastic. She was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Da, 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 da. So next thing I knew, I was doing an MA on 1830s millinery and milliners in England. And it was just so much fun. It was amazing. I learned so much. And I mean, the crazy thing is that the millinery industry how milliners work there are so many parallels with how we still work today so that's kind of what my continuing area of research is going to be um and I've got loads more bonnets now to make and copy and yeah when you were looking at that um I'm, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the materials that we have available today versus what it would have been made in did it align could you source them how did that go <laughs> The good thing, I mean, the good thing about having the bonnet yourself, there's loads of bonnets in museums, but different museums have different rules about what you're allowed to do to the hat. So some museums, you're allowed to pick them up and touch them and really see inside. Other museums like the V&A, they bring them out on these kind of padded cushions on a table and you can't even see under the brim. You can't see inside. No one's allowed to pick up the bonnet, you know, so it's like, okay. But when you have the bonnet yourself and it's yours, you can do whatever you like with it. I mean, I'm fairly careful, you know, I don't kind of rip holes in it, but you can see inside and you can feel the weight of the wire. You can feel the weight of the silk. You can see what the crown is made of. And um, the crown in this one was made of cardboard. It just had normal cotton covered wire and it was just silk and it had like a kind of cane in these little rib things um so I was like okay I can find the materials you know I can find I can replicate so I kind of replicated with what I had I've since made about five five or six of the same bonnet with different materials each time just to kind of see the difference I'm working on one at the moment it's going to go on display in the museum um in Yorkshire in March um this is probably the closest I can get I found this silk that is just as close as possible to the weight of the original. Um, and I'm using all my treasure vintage materials to kind of put this one together and it's looking good. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been good fun. So yeah, I think we've got it lucky over here in England. There's a lot more access to materials um, than there is say in Australia. Um, in America, there's interesting materials. There's different materials again. Um, I didn't find loads. I lived in Canada for a year. I didn't find loads in Canada, but I think here in England, we're quite lucky. You can buy lots of vintage stuff still and eBay is my main haunt. Um, I just, you know, um, yeah, love finding, love finding original materials and they're not, they're not super common, but they are out there. So 
Yeah. So what is your, here's the big question is what is your stash like of materials? Oh, well, um, it's, it's, it's big. <laughs> I, um, I, I took a studio, uh, an external studio in July last year, just cause I was always working from home. And I suppose when you become a milliner, I suppose you don't maybe sometimes even realize it's happening. It's not a conscious decision. Like, you know, you go work for other milliners and all the stuff is there at their house or their studio, et cetera, et cetera. And you start working from home, but you kind of think, well, I work from home. Maybe I'm not a proper milliner, da, 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 da. But I suppose moving out to a proper studio was another, I suppose, big tick that I was like, oh, actually, maybe I'm actually doing this. <laughs> like, maybe this is my job. Like, you know, um, I still sometimes have to pinch myself. I don't quite believe it's it's true but when I took on the studio I realized quite how much stuff I have and we got rid of a lot when we went to Canada but I came back from Canada with lots of stuff and it's kind of steadily grown um yeah um I'll have to take pictures and put them on Instagram to see my my new my new studio but um yeah I, I I don't think I've got a lot compared to other people I've just got, the thing about millinery is you can keep tiny bits of fabric and they're all going to be useful. So I've got about seven boxes just of tiny bits of fabric. I've got, you know, a braid box. I've got about five boxes of ribbon and, you know, just stuff. (laughs) So did you mention your moving studios at the moment? Yeah, so... The first studio I took was great, but the ceilings weren't very high, so I couldn't stack my boxes. Um, so I saw a different one where I can stack the boxes a bit higher. Um, and it just means I've got more storage for the stuff, you know, for the hats. And it's lucky that hats are quite light. Um, you know, um, fabric is not and books are not. <laughs> so that's, that's the downside. But, yeah, um, the hats at least aren't heavy, so. And how much time do you get to spend in your studio? Never as much as I'd like. I think the trouble when I had it at home was that I spent too much time in it because you could always just kind of nip in like in the evening or at the weekends and you, you burn yourself out. Um, You end up working too much and you never leave it alone. Now I get to go in the morning, sit down, you know, get into the day and then, I'm always amazed at how quickly five o'clock comes around and I have to leave and go pick up my little boy, you know, and just come home and I'm not allowed to do anything to do with hats, you know, until maybe I'll do something in the evening, but very rarely anymore. So at the moment, officially, um, I'm there four days a week, but also um, I teach costume at one of the universities here in Nottingham. So they, they steal me. So it's been for quite a few days this year but um at the moment it's kind of one day a week sometimes it's four days a week so I'm always I don't know if I feel like I'm always fighting to have the time I always wish I could have more time but yeah and what projects are you working on at the moment well so most of my work um I mean, I call myself a theatrical milliner, but I don't even know if that's probably what I should be at Panto time. So December, November over here, all across the country, um, they have pantomimes in every single city, um, loads of costumes, really kind of Larry, uh, bright colors and that's a really busy time of year for me so last year I did I think three different pantos and so it's about 25 hats um 
year before uh it was uh COVID so not that many but um you know it's it's super super busy so that's my big theatrical bit but the rest of the time through the year I do a lot of work for uh a dress historian and historical dressmaker called Meredith Town so she works a lot with say English Heritage and the National Trust and all these places um, and they have costumes either for the interpreters, so the people who take you on tours of these big stately homes, or for the education things, so the children who come to do school visits. And they want costumes to try on, so I end up just making loads and loads of either child size or adult size uh, Tudor hats or Georgian hats or bicorns or tricorns or, you know, English Civil War hats. They always want those. They're really boring to make, but, you know. It's, um, at the moment, I've got, I think, about 16 Tudor hats to make for the 23rd of March. So, yeah, that will, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a big job. That's going to, uh, yeah, a few days on that one. But um, so, yeah, just things like that. I think I'm booked now for the next few months just doing those things and teaching. So it was a bit scary kind of setting up a studio and, you know, officially calling myself a milliner but so far so good <laughs> sounds like that's something that took a lot of time for you to come to as a, a position being comfortable with calling yourself a milliner what was was there a particular day where you're like this is this this is it I'm now a milliner versus a, a technician I don't know I suppose it's because <sighs> When I worked at Phillips, I always saw him as a milliner. He never called himself a milliner. He didn't like the term. Um, and I think it's because he think refers back to the, the 18th century and early 19th century uh, definition of a milliner, which was, you know, um, somebody who sold women's, you know, fancy wares, et cetera, et cetera. So caps and hats and ribbons and da, 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 da. So not just making the hats, but it was a shop that sold, you know. Um, so he calls himself a hat designer. I thought, well, I'm not a designer. I don't like designing the hats. I like problem solving the hats. I like figuring them out. I don't really like having the responsibility for, you know, like the concept type thing. So I've always just considered myself, yeah, the technician, the problem solver. Um, I think one of the times I landed back in Australia and they ask you your job and you have to fill it out on the form. I think I did put milliner, but that's because I worked for Philip at the time. So I thought, oh, I can put milliner. I'm sure that's fine. But I, yeah. I don't know. I think when maybe I just can't settle on one job. I do like teaching and I do like other bits. So some days I'm an academic, you know, doing research like for the MA. Some days I'm a teacher. Some days I'm a milliner. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's too hard to commit to just one job. Well, it sounds like you don't need to, and it's a lovely, lovely balance. So what's up next for you in your in your research area? Um, well, so the MA was good. It was really hard work, but I really enjoyed it. So sorry, um, just I so did before wonder... you go, Ma it's a master's, is that the right? What's the... Yes, yeah, so it's a complicated one. It's, um, <laughs> so you can do, over here, you can do an MA. You can have like a taught MA where you attend a university like once or twice a week and they have classes. Um, and you can have like an MA in art or an MA in you know all different things um but I found one that was an MA by research um so a master's of arts by research and that meant that you didn't attend classes you kind of had to do it all yourself in a way like you had to be kind of self-led you had a supervisor who you met with once a month 
And I thought, well, yeah, I can go up to Huddersfield, which is where I did it uh, once a month. But then COVID hit anyway, so it was all on Zoom, so it was fine. Um, and basically, yeah, I just chatted with my supervisor once a month and I did all the research and wrote a 25,000-word thesis on 1830s millinery. <laughs> like it was, yeah, it was good. It was good. But um, there were so many things that came up when I did that that I thought I really would like to do more. There was so I found so much information about materials that they used. I mean, we think that materials disappear now, like, but it's been happening, you know, for centuries, like materials come and go. And so stuff that they used to make hats out of, you know, all those technologies have disappeared. And, you know, I really want to know what the Milliner's studio looked like back in, you know, 1830, 1840, 1850, because there's no pictures. But you can kind of get a glimpse by reading newspaper articles and seeing what was in the shops. And, um, you know, no one's, uh, to me, it's really obvious. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, doesn't everybody love this? You know, but no one's written any books on it yet. Or, you know, there's no books with loads and loads of patterns for hats. Like all the bonnets I'm making, there's no, you know, there's no books with that in. So, I mean, ultimately, that would be a lovely thing to do is, you know, produce a book with, with patterns for bonnets, but also, yeah, continue the research into milliners and making and you know how we make stuff and how it's still so relevant today so with the challenges of lockdown COVID and not being able to necessarily visit places how did what how did you go about your research what were some of the resources you were drawing on um I suppose when I set out I thought I would go visit all the collections I could in the country over here. There are so many museums over here with so many hats and stuff, you know. Um, and I managed to get to three before COVID hit and lockdown. Um, so that was cool. But even after I'd started seeing the bonnets, I thought, oh, maybe I'm not gonna write just about hats. Um, I was getting more interested in the lives of the milliners and you know how they worked. And all of that was coming from the census and the British newspaper archives and, things like maps and uh what's it like trade directories and all these sorts of things so I basically mapped out like 1830s Nottingham where all the I think there were like at one point 45 milliners and because wow. Nottingham's not that big you know I could walk around the streets and I knew all the streets and I could kind of see where all these these women were you know um and yeah, so all of that's online. It's amazing. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible, but now all these newspapers are there, all the census is on there, um, and Google Maps, you know, that's amazing. Like, you can just find anything, can't you? So um, a lot of it, yeah, was kind of online stuff, and also all the books I needed, lots of stuff has been digitised. All the stuff I was looking at was published, you know, in the Victorian period so it's all been digitized by all these libraries and it's available it's all free like it's all sitting there um yeah it was it was it was not as hard um as you might imagine so yeah interesting and what what surprised you in in when you're researching what was the thing that yeah surprised um, you most surprised me most just the variation in what I suppose a milliner was back then. Um, there were loads of people who listed themselves as milliner in the census, but you looked up their names and they didn't have a business. So they must have worked for a milliner. So you could call yourself a milliner if you worked for a milliner. 
Um, but if you had your own shop, you were also a milliner. Um, and then there were some people who were like, no, I'm a straw bonnet maker or I'm a bonnet maker or I'm this or I'm, you know, and there were so many little variations and I just, it was just kind of interesting. I just thought, um, I wonder if we've got this idea that back then, you know, you know, what was the career path? I mean, lots of women gave it up when they got married, whether they wanted to or not, we don't know. I mean, maybe they hated it and found the rich man plan and off they went, you know, and just, you know, um, but there was one milliner and she um, became a bit of a feature in my thesis. Um, she had a shop in the same spot for over 60 years. And you hear all these horror stories that, you know, being a milliner or a dressmaker in the Victorian period was just like terrible. Like the conditions were horrible. Like why would anybody want this job? And yet she did it for, you know, till she was in her eighties, I think. And you think, well, it can't have been that bad. Like, you know, she had this little shop in the same place. Um, and, she, you know, maybe she didn't want to get married or, you know, you, you, you can't know. You can't know. You, you're just guessing. But I think, yeah, the reputation for milliners, you know, was that it was, it was not a brilliant job to have. But I have a feeling that, you know, there were quite a few women where it was, it was a really good career opportunity. You could be a kind of entrepreneur without, without causing too much fuss, without making too many ripples. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. So that was a surprise. <laughs> and where are you exploring next in your research? Um, geographically, I'm not really sure. I'll probably stick to England just because at the moment it's easier uh, still COVID times, you know, so travel, not as easy, but um, yeah, uh, there's, there's lots of amazing museums in America that I'd quite like to go and uh, poke around in and see all their hats. Um, their online collections are phenomenal in terms of what has been digitized. Um, I found so many more bonnets on American websites than I have on UK ones. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like why, why the American ones, you know, maybe they've got more money, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, I'd definitely like to go see, go see some American bonnets. I think that would be good fun. What is uh, an upcoming project that you're looking forward to working on? Um, oh, I'm finally going to get some time to make the other bonnets that I've bought. So I've got a collection, I think of about 10 or 12 other Victorian bonnets and I've started taking patterns. I keep waiting for like some free time, like so that I could sit and do it, but I never get any free time. Um, I'm thinking that by June, I'll probably be free. And I've got two interns, two work placement people coming to work with me this summer so that will be nice um they're going to be there for like most of June and July so um hopefully they can help and I get to teach them you know all, all the stuff that I was taught and I suppose maybe it's come full circle a bit it's quite quite a novel experience to have you know work placement students because this is I think what are we now yeah 2002 was when I was first taught by Louise so 20 years later don't tell Louise it's 20 years because it doesn't feel like 20 years it feels like much much less um you know I I um I get to have my own little students so yeah that would be nice fantastic 
Well, best of luck on your research. And I can't wait to see what you discover next in the world of 1830s millinery. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing with us. And it was lovely to have you as part of our podcast. Oh, thank you, Lauren. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real honour to be on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Millinery Info with Lauren. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for their support. Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Millinery Australia, Louise McDonald Milliner, Marie D'Antony Millinery, Best Western Apollo Bay and Apartments, Hat Mags, Hats by Leco, Hat Academy, Lifted Millinery, Hatters Millinery Supplies, That Millinery, The Essential Hat, House of Adorn and Be Unique Millinery. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes. This is on your podcast app or on our website. If you'd like to become a Patreon of Millinery Info, there are two tiers available. A podcast sponsor, which means your business or event is mentioned in our podcast, link included in the Millinery Info website and the monthly newsletter. We also have a supporter tier, which is from just $5 a month. It's a little more than shouting us a coffee a month. It's for those who would like to quietly show their support, but also their appreciation for the content we produce on Millinery Info. If you have any questions about becoming a Patreon, I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash millinery info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you so much for joining me today for this episode of Millinery Info. And I look forward to talking hats with you again soon. <laughs>